Hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, my friends, and welcome tonight. Now, let me begin right off the bat, because I know this audience is not bashful about saying what they see. Yes, I'm wearing braces for the first time in my more than 60 years. And the reason for that is really rather comical. I'm getting old, and my teeth are wearing out, and they're starting to shatter, and by multiple opinions, the consensus was, if I didn't put braces on my teeth, all my teeth were going to shatter and fall out. Well, I'm not so sure about this. You know, when the old horse's teeth get worn down, the old ranch hand and the horse go out for a drive and only one of them comes back. Maybe that's what we ought to do here. I'm not sure. Either way, I feel like I have a mouthful of peanut butter, but I'm going to try to talk anyway. So there you go. Now we don't have to worry about Hey, what's wrong with his mouth? Well, now you know what's wrong with my mouth. One of the things we talked about at length there was the Mormon battalion. And the reason for that is the Mormon battalion was called and volunteered out of western Iowa and left the Latter-day Saints there on the Missouri River on the Iowa side and began their march down to Santa Fe and on into California as part of the Mexican War in 1846. The whole Mormon battalion march is a little-known event in church history, yet it was of huge import. And if you understand the implications, even now. Brigham Young once referred to the men of the battalion as the salvation of this church. Here's one story from that march. I shared it in the conference when we were there, and I thought I would do it again here to get all the facts in and details that I couldn't share in the conference. December the 11th, 1846, along the San Pedro River in southeastern Arizona, the men of the Mormon Battalion continued their grueling march for California. They had come down through Iowa and down into Kansas Territory, from there to Santa Fe, across New Mexico, and now we're crossing into southeastern Arizona. As they came along the San Pedro River, wild longhorn cattle roamed the hills above them. They'd been abandoned and left there by Mexican ranchers who had been driven off by Apaches some time before. It is reported by Daniel Tyler of the battalion, and there are conflicting reports, that the men startled a herd of these wild longhorns that came toward them. Some scattered from the hills, but some of the bulls charged right at them, and the men began to open fire into the bulls. Pandemonium broke loose. Dozens, not quite a hundred, but they describe dozens of raging longhorn bulls stampeded down out of the hills and charged through the battalion camp, goring mules, overturning wagons. 
The men ran in every direction, dodging the bulls and shooting as they went. Other men ran for cover. Some climbed up short trees or just dropped to the ground and let the bulls run over them. One private, Amos Cox, was hooked by the horn of one bull in the thigh, right where it joins the torso, and thrown 10 feet over the head of the bull and down the length of the bull's body. Sergeant Albert Smith was trampled by a bull and had three ribs broken. Another man was severely bruised when a bull charged him and the horns passed on either side of his body. One diary reported the bulls as daring and savage as tigers, unquote. Another man was being chased and suddenly just dropped to the ground and the bull leaped right over him. Now, the exciting part of the whole story is Colonel Philip St. George Cook, the commander of the battalion, was, according to one diary, mounted on a white mule and watching the fray from nearby, when all of a sudden, a black bull, about a hundred yards away, charged at Colonel Cook. Standing near the colonel was Corporal Lafayette McCullers Frost. Colonel Cook recorded the following, quote, I was very near Corporal Frost when an immense coal-black bull came charging upon us. A hundred yards distant, Frost aimed his musket, a flintlock, very deliberately, and only fired when the beast was within six paces. It fell headlong, almost at our feet, Cook said, end of quote. Well, of course, Colonel Cook was relieved and impressed. He commended Frost as, quote, one of the bravest men he ever saw, but he also said he wanted no further proofs of his courage, end of quote. Well, in a detailed memoriam of the event, the ranking general authority on the march, Levi Hancock, composed a poem, part of which reads as follows. The colonel and his staff were there, mounted and witnessing the war. A bull 100 yards away eyed Colonel Cook as easy prey. But Corporal Frost stood bravely by and watched the bull with steady eye. The brute approached near and more near, but Frost betrayed no sign of fear. The colonel ordered him to run. Unmoved, he stood with loaded gun. The bull came up with daring tread when near his feet Frost shot him dead, end of quote. Well, that story, recorded by multiple witnesses, is true. And interestingly enough, it would be one of the only battles the battalion would have, and the man who went down in legend, as it were, representing the bravery of all the men of the battalion, was Corporal Lafayette McCullers Frost. But the part of the story that no one knows is that Corporal Frost would never live to return to his family, to his parents. Daniel Tyler wrote the following, quote, On the eighth day of September, 1847, Sergeant Frost, the former brave corporal on whose memory the battalion loved to dwell, succumbed to the fell monster death. No eulogy on his character is needed. Suffice it to say, he was a man of few words, but abundant in good deeds. 
His remains were interred a half mile southeast of town, end of quote. That story has always inspired my imagination. Now, next story. You can ask my children. One of Dad's favorite sayings as they were growing up, one that they all remember is, As ye sow, so shall you reap. The Apostle Paul once said, Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season shall we reap, if we faint not. Galatians 6, 7 and 9. The law of the harvest, as you know, has often been a powerfully personal way of teaching gospel principles to those who live close to the land. Knowles Shaw, Knowles Shaw, was born in Butler County, Ohio, on October 13, 1834. His parents, Albin and Hulda Shaw, were both of Scottish descent. The family moved to Rushville, Indiana, where Albin was a farmer, stock dealer, and merchant. When Knowles was almost 13, he stood at the bedside of his dying father. Albin gave his son a prized violin and the advice to, quote, be good to your mother and prepare to meet thy God, end of quote. Well, Noel's father passed away. He dropped out of school and worked hard on the farm to provide for his mother and two sisters. He was a quick learner and acquired many skills through careful observation. One neighbor said that Noel's Shaw's head was like a tar bucket. For everything that touched it stuck to it. I think that's a rather colorful way to say he had something of a photographic memory. Alvin would have been proud of his son's effort to care for the family. However, the second part of his father's advice, to be a God-fearing Christian, well, Knowles totally ignored that. Knowles worked diligently to learn to play the violin which his father had given him. In fact, he gained a measure of fame in the area because of his musical skill. He frequently played with bands at dances and parties. Then one night, while playing his violin at a dance, a very unlikely place for any thought of his eternal welfare, the advice of his father came forcefully and unbidden to his mind. Prepare to meet thy God. It seemed to him like a voice from the grave and a message from heaven rested on his soul. The song ended, and dancers noisily called for another song. To the surprise of everyone there, Knowles Shaw put down the violin and walked to the middle of the floor. He shared with the group his father's dying words and expressed remorse for neglecting religious commitments. He then declared that he would never play violin for another dance and asked the group, to not hinder his ability to lead a Christian life. From that hour forward, Knowles Shaw kept that pledge. He became a faithful church member. For the next two years, Knowles worked as a farmhand and even married one of his employer's daughters, Martha Finley. However, Knowles felt a call to the harvest of gathering souls 
to Christ. He worked tirelessly in the churches he was assigned to, having the ability to connect with every social level of people in the communities where he preached. Noel Shaw became one of the best-known evangelists in the Christian Restoration Movement in the 19th century. At six feet, three inches tall, he was an imposing presence, a force to be reckoned with. And because he was an exceptional singer, he was often called the singing evangelist, integrating hymns into his sermons as part of his message. He was credited with writing over 40 songs, which he often sang in revivals. It seems fitting now that we consider for the farmer turned evangelist that the title of one of his final songs, and perhaps most famous, written in 1874 and dedicated to the memory of a fellow preacher, began like this. Sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontide and the dewy eve, waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. The refrain, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Not long after that song was written, in May of 1878, Shaw left his wife and family at his home in Columbus, Mississippi, to participate in a month of gospel meetings in Dallas, Texas. On that journey, while riding the train, he was talking to a fellow minister, a Methodist minister, Mr. Mallory, when a broken rail caused the train to jump the track. The train car in which they were riding flipped three times before landing in some standing water 40 feet below the tracks. According to the minister, Mallory, Shaw had saved his life by pushing him out of harm's way. Twenty-seven people on that train were injured. There was only one death, the singing evangelist, Noel Shaw. The final verse of Shaw's hymn seems a fitting tribute to the young farmer violinist who committed his life to bringing souls to Christ. He wrote, going forth with weeping, sowing for the master. Though the loss sustained our spirit often grieves, when our weeping's over, he will welcome. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Those of you who love church history as I do and reverence those sacred sites that we get to visit because of the efforts of others, have you ever wondered how this wonderful pattern of preserving church history sites? Have you ever wondered where and how it all began, the preservation of church sites? Here's a story you might appreciate, and I'm indebted to a friend, Jenny Lund, for this story. In the spring of 1846, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints were headed west fleeing persecution and seeking a new home over the Rocky Mountains. The intent that year, 46, had been to travel from Nauvoo, Illinois, all the way to the Rocky Mountains in the 1846 season. But rain, 
snow, hail, mud, and the like had significantly slowed the progress of the saints. The arduous struggle across Iowa began to take its toll, and some were unable to go on. It was decided by Brother Brigham and church leadership to establish way stations where the saints could stop, rest, resupply, and recruit their teams. The first of these way stations was named Garden Grove, and the second was located on the Grand River in Iowa, farther to the east, west rather, and was called Mount Pisgah. Well, it's of Pisgah that I want to speak. Very soon, within a short time after its settlement, two to three thousand saints called Pisgah home. It was a beautiful place. But notwithstanding its beauty and appeal, within six years, the Latter-day Saint settlement of Mount Pisgah was abandoned. The saints had moved on to the mountains, leaving behind, it is estimated, some 150 of their loved ones. The little cemetery on the hill that they left behind was forgotten. The Pioneer Road changed locations, never to pass that way again. Supposedly, the end of the story. Not. Forty years later, Hannah Settle Lapish, a Latter-day Saint and herself a handcart pioneer from England, happened to be visiting family members in Montana. One day, while visiting a neighbor of her daughter's, she happened to be gleefing through a book on the shelf on the history of Union County, Iowa. As she did, she caught at a glance a reference to Mount Pisgah, a name she recognized from church history. She was astonished to learn that the neighbor's widowed mother and brother who lived in Iowa owned the land on which the Mount Pisgah Cemetery was located. Now, although Sister Lapish, who had come to America in 1860, had never been to Mount Pisgah, she felt that others might have an interest in it. So, at Hannah's suggestion, the owners of the land in Iowa reached out to then-church president John Taylor, asking whether they might wish to, in some way, mark the place. President Taylor asked Oliver Boardman Huntington, whose father was Pisgah's first branch president in 1846 and is buried there, if Oliver would inquire of the other descendants of those buried there if there was an interest in marking the site. Quote, The desire to remember and honor their loved ones was strong. End of quote. Accordingly, the land was purchased May 3rd, 1886, and efforts then went forth to erect a monument to the saints interred there. That monument was dedicated in 1882, 42 years after the first burial at Mount Pisgah. It stands today as a tribute, not only to those buried there, but also to the faith and sacrifice of those who passed through there. Today, the marble obelisk at Mount Pisgah, 
may not be the most visited of Latter-day Saint church history sites, but it was the first to be marked and remembered. For you see, as Jenny Lund phrased it, it would be another two decades before church leaders again turned their attention to the acquisition of sites important to church history. Places like Joseph Smith's birthplace in Vermont, the Sacred Grove in New York, and Carthage Jail in Illinois would be acquired in the coming decades. But it all began with this little pioneer cemetery on a windswept hill on the prairie of Iowa. I've said this many times, and I share this next story because it will be in the book that we are presently writing. I've said it before, I say it again, we live in the presence of heaven, angels, and they are watching and involved in our lives and very much concerned that we succeed. Francis Clement Nickel, or Clem, as he was called, grew up deeply religious. At the age of 18, Clem became the superintendent of the Sunday school and the leader of the weekly youth prayer meeting in his Protestant denomination. Under his leadership, both prospered. Then, one night after prayer meeting, the youth were gathered outside the church. Some of them began to sing a party song, Skip to Maloo, you know the song. But unfortunately, the minister overheard and was deeply offended. Clem was called in and raked over the coals. He was dismissed as superintendent of the Sunday school, and the youth prayer meetings were discontinued. And it was not over yet. One day, a group of boys were gathered together listening to Clem play the harmonica. Suddenly, one of them jumped up and started dancing a jig. Yeah, someone saw this, and Clem was ratted out and called in before the elders of the church and excommunicated because he had played for a dance. Incidentally, he offered the invocation at the very meeting in which he was excommunicated. Well, then one day, after all that, many years later, two Mormon elders came into the community where Clem lived. The family history says, quote, Clem had been brought up where the Mormons were considered more as a band of outlaws than as a church. The missionaries, however, seemed so clean and fine, so in earnest that he took them in and listened to their message, believing, no doubt, the record says, that he might enlighten them and rescue them from a belief in pernicious doctrines, end of quote love this story. Later that night, when he returned home after listening to the elders, his wife, Nellie, asked, how was the preaching? To which Clem responded, I've never heard so much truth in all my life. But it sounded hard to take at the last, for they said they knew Joseph Smith was a prophet of God, end quote. So not decided, but deeply moved, Clem continued to study and listen. The message of the elders rang true, but still, he wasn't sure. One day he said, quote, Nellie, I'm going to go see my mother. 
I know that she'll be happy to know the truth is really on the earth. End of quote. To this, Nellie hardly agreed. Clem made the journey and told his mother, who was also devoutly religious and a seeker. Mother, Clem said, I've come to tell you something glorious and beautiful. I have found the true church of Jesus Christ, one that bears his name and teaches his doctrines. It even has the same organization that he had in his church. Where is it, son? Tell me quick, she said. But as the conversation went on, and she heard the despised word Mormon, she broke down and cried bitterly. Don't ever let the Mormons into your home again, Clem, she said. Well, her words shook Clem. And even though it rattled him, he and Nellie continued to investigate the church for many years. Finally, November 1914, after much study and prayer, Clem and Nellie were baptized. Clem was filled with joy and power, but there was a lingering pain in his heart. How could it be that his mother, a woman so noble and righteous, could see no good in the church? It bothered Clem, and he longed for a testimony strong enough that he would have the power to put the message over to her and convince her of its truthfulness. One night, Clem knelt before his bed and prayed for a testimony so firm and true that he could stand before any force and declare its truthfulness with convincing power. And quoting, Suddenly, the room became light, and Brigham Young, President Brigham Young, appeared before him, telling him that he had in very deed accepted the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and promised Clem that if he would be faithful, he would soon receive the priesthood, and that not only would his mother accept the truth, but he would be instrumental in bringing all his father's household into the church. End of quote. Hearing that, can you imagine? Clem went forward with renewed effort to teach his mother, but she would not accept it. Then one day, his mother became ill and lapsed into a coma. All the family knew she was on her deathbed. When, quote, suddenly she regained full consciousness and she raised up in bed and called all her nine living children to her bedside, saying, still quoting, she had something she wished to tell them. And then she said, in effect, Clem, I'm going, and I want you to make me one promise before I go. <laughs> With some trepidation, Clem answered, Mother, I will promise you anything that is within the bounds of reason. And she continued, Clem, promise me that you will go to the temple and do the work for your father and me, and that you will teach the gospel as you understand it to all your brothers and sisters. Through his tears of mingled grief and joy, he answered fervently, with all the power God will give me, mother dear, I will. Now, still quoting, the family all loved her very dearly, 
for she was an ideal mother. But they could not help thinking that maybe she was not quite rational as she spoke these words. So her daughter Emma said, Mother, you don't mean that you want us to be Mormons, do you? Yes, I mean that, she said. Now I know that Clem has accepted the truth. I have seen into the eternities. I cannot talk more now, for I must go. But, and she pointed to him, Clem here can talk, and he can teach you the ways. With these words, she lay back on her pillow and passed away to her eternal rest, having not only fulfilled the promise that Clem had been given by Brother Brigham, that she would accept the truth, but she also was permitted to bear testimony of it to her children. End quote. The end of that story? <laughs> Clem did the temple work for his mother and father as requested, and his prayer was answered. He became so powerful a teacher and missionary that the missionaries sought him out to teach. He was in demand as a fireside speaker. He brought many to the gospel, among whom <laughs> all his brothers and sisters. End quote. You doing okay? I'm having great fun. I can't speak really well, but I'm having great fun. I just wanted to let you know that, in case you hadn't heard, the new 2021 book collection of stories has been mailed out. And thank you to all those of you who supported that book and brought it forth. Now, if you're a VIP, you should have it. But if you're a VIP and didn't get a free copy of that book, send me an email and we'll jump right on it. And again, I don't know how to say this without sounding like some sort of fundraiser. I hate that. But I want to thank you, all those of you who in the last two weeks, three weeks, have signed up as VIPs. I wish I could tell you or show you the effect for good that you are having, not on me, but the power that these stories are having on other people. It's not me. It's the stories and the work that you're doing to bring them forth. Thank you for your support, and thank you for sending in the stories. We couldn't do this without your help. These firesides wouldn't be here without you. So thank you. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. We will be back again with another podcast next week.